Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global, here today with Dan Held, co-founder of Interchange. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. Dan, you, you've been doing a lot of writing recently uh, about uh, about Bitcoin, about proof of work, uh, about energy, and a bunch of topics we were going to get into. Um, first, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Bitcoin's uh, origin story. You wrote uh, a sort of series of pieces around planting uh, Bitcoin, using that as a, as a metaphor. Can you sort of talk about the inspiration for why you wrote that piece and unpack uh, what that piece and what that series was about? Yeah, so I started to write Planting Bitcoin uh, in early 2018. I have a kind of interesting story behind it, which was that I was on the way back from Tahoe uh, with a couple of my friends. Um, you might you might know one, Jill Carlson. And uh, what Jill told me on the way back is she goes, you know what, Satoshi's brilliance, and, and, and for the listeners of the show, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto was the creator of Bitcoin. She goes, you know, Satoshi's brilliance wasn't just in his code. It wasn't just in how he built Bitcoin. It was in his go-to-market strategy. And as a marketer, that really appealed to me. And I've, you know, I've, I've worn a couple of different hats, marketing being one of them, uh, really appealed to me. And, and I started to dig in deeper and then really kind of fell down the rabbit hole in terms of looking at how Satoshi uh, launched Bitcoin. And that's where I came up with the narrative planting Bitcoin. And to kind of dive into what I mean by planting Bitcoin, Satoshi's brilliance wasn't just in the species of tree that he chose to plant but it was the season, the soil, and the gardening techniques that were equally as important. And, you know, we can kind of go a lot of different directions diving into this, uh, but that's kind of the high level of what planting Bitcoin is about. Um, let's, let's, let's start at the beginning. Why don't we go one by one? So Satoshi, when he created Bitcoin, the species of Bitcoin, he took snippets of genetic code uh, from other previous attempts at making cryptocurrency or making money. And so those previous attempts were like hash cash by Adam Beck and Bitgold by Nick Zabo and reusable proof of works by Hal Finney. And Satoshi took those snippets of code and and put those together, kind of Frankenstein them in a way. I think that's not a very eloquent way of putting it, but he, he, he crispered that genetic code together to assemble Bitcoin, the, the organism. And In terms of the code that he chose to pick, you know, how do you choose the right snippets of code to put together? Satoshi understood and really looked into the history of money and what what makes a good money. And so if we use the analogy that money is like an organism, Satoshi looked to endow Bitcoin with certain genetic code that manifests itself via traits to, to make it a superior money, to give it the highest advantageous chances for survival. And those traits of money that we talk that that I reference are the the parameters of money that makes money a good money. And what that is is for example, it's fungibility. The idea that one dollar that I use at the grocery store is worth the exact same as another dollar used at another grocery store. It's divisibility. I need to be able to denominate down to very small amounts up to very large amounts. It's durability. If dollar bills, you know, if I wash my jeans with my dollar bills and they, and they just kind of fell apart in the, in the washing machine, 
that's not a durable enough money. And I think gold is a really great representation of durability. It doesn't tarnish over time. You know, in terms of its divisibility, it's very malleable. And then, of course, there's many other parameters. Now, I don't want to go through each one, but Satoshi carefully chose those genetic, that genetic code in order, to, in order to make Bitcoin a very ferocious and kind of survivable money. And so on the species side, you know, I make, a, I make an argument that it's a bit of a, this is a bit of a, you know, condensing the narrative here, but make an argument that Bitcoin's characteristics as money is superior to the characteristics of money for previous monies like gold, fiat, and shells and beads. And can you just give the punchline of why it's superior to gold? Yeah, tra- transferability and verifiability. Uh, with gold, it's really hard for an individual user to verify that it's gold. And there's, there's been a faction of, of people who believe that Satoshi's original vision was to make, uh, was for Bitcoin to be payments. Can you do two, I, know, I know you don't uh, believe that. Can you sh- share why that isn't true, but also share perhaps what, what leads them to believe that? Yeah, and that, I think that flows really nicely into the second part of planting Bitcoin, which is season. And season covers the, the current environment in which Bitcoin was planted, um, or not environment, but sorry, the, uh, the, the, the time that Bitcoin was planted. And so uh, the first time Bitcoin was, was announced to the world was via a white paper, the Bitcoin white paper. And there are individuals who read the Bitcoin white paper, and there are comments that Satoshi makes to where he calls Bitcoin an electronic cash. Uh, he mentions that Bitcoin is useful for payments uh, due to different issues with merchant processors. And so they use that language as the core fundamental basis to believe that Bitcoin was solely made to be a cheap PayPal or a cheap way to send transactions. And I think, you know, looking at that, I think is a really disingenuous way to evaluate Satoshi's intention, which by the way, even judging on what Satoshi's intention originally was, is, is kind of silly because we are where we are now. But they insist on using that as kind of the platform for their moral superiority. And this is the faction of the Bitcoin Cash community uh, over the Bitcoin community. And so implanting Bitcoin and uh, with some other content I've produced, I, I kind of debunk the theory where you know, if you take the white paper out of context, sure, you could read it that way, but they don't even use the interpretation of those words correctly. For example, they look at the word cash and assume that when Satoshi writes that, he means that it's like cash in your pocket. That's not true at all. Satoshi wrote the Bitcoin white paper as a, as a marketing tool for the cypherpunks. He originally published this paper on the cryptographer mailing list. And he, the individuals on that mailing list being the, the cypherpunks those cypherpunks were all encryption experts. They were, they were really into libertarian ideology, and he wanted to capture their imagination. And the word cash in that context explicitly means a one-way transaction where after you make the payment, it can't be reversed. So that's how he's using the word cash, and they, they misinterpret that. And then when he talks about payments, Satoshi, in his brilliance at launching and executing on Bitcoin, needed to rally a core group of believers to help them help him go build this. And those were the cypherpunks. Now, cypherpunks don't care about monetary policy. I mean, maybe some do, but most really resonated around the idea of finality, the idea that a payment is final, and that the idea of, that a payment might be pseudonymous or, you know, in their best and most wildest dreams, it would be anonymous. And so Satoshi wrote the white paper 
to really capture the imagination of the cypherpunks. Like, hey, this is the holy grail you've been looking for. And so, so Satoshi uses more payment-oriented language for that. But, but if we zoom out and we look at every other word Satoshi uses on forums, the original construction of the code, if we look at those, it clearly indicates that Bitcoin is meant to be built as a store of value. For example, Satoshi references Bitcoin being like gold or a precious metal over five times. Satoshi also architected a 21 million hard cap into Bitcoin. You know, that's genetic code. He coded that in, into the parameters, into the genetic code of that species of money. And a 21 million hard cap doesn't incentivize spending. It incentivizes um, saving. And so, and then you look at, you know, Satoshi statements where the first, after the white paper, the first thing he says in the first forum post that he's posted since the white paper, he goes, the root of all problems with currencies start with central banks. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't say, he doesn't say the root problem is with uh, Visa or PayPal. Uh, you know, in, in the first block, in the Bitcoin blockchain, the first message that Satoshi wrote is the UK chancellor on the verge of second bailout for banks. So there's a ton of other supporting evidence, but the one side insists on cherry picking sentences from the white paper, whereas I believe a better, more objective way to view it would be to look at all available data. And I, I think to kind of pull this all together and to wrap up the second part of this, which is, you know, the season in which Satoshi planted Bitcoin, we can certainly say that the decade he planted Bitcoin, that that decade was random and, and probably the year as well. Satoshi does mention he's been working on Bitcoin for a few years. It's unlikely that he chose the year exactly, but we can say with somewhat certainty that he chose the month and the day. And the month, so for example, he, public, he already registers Bitcoin.org in August 2008. And he waits until October 31st, 2008 to publish the white paper. Now, that moment, to bring everyone back to what that moment was, I mean, this was a catastrophic moment in the financial markets. People, uh, you know, very wealthy investment bankers told their, their wives to pull out as much money as they could from the ATM. These are the core people who understand and have insider knowledge as to how the financial system works. If you look at the a number of search queries for financial crisis, they peak in October 2008. And so Satoshi planted Bitcoin at the exact peak of despair, at the exact moment when everyone was scrambling and worrying about what was going to happen in the world. Some of that was serendipitous timing-wise, but some of it was carefully chosen. He waited until that peak moment. And I think, you know, if you're trying to disrupt Visa or PayPal, who cares when you launch it? You know, Visa wasn't really too worried about things. Neither was PayPal. But what people were worried about was the trust in the financial system. And, and he directly, I think, genetically coded Bitcoin to, to tackle that problem. We, we touched on parts of the, of the soil. Did, did we cover the third piece just, right, just now? Soil? The third is soil. And soil is the cypherpunks. And we kind of we covered that already. Like who was the, the message intended for? How did he make sure that Bitcoin was planted in the right soil? soil? He made sure that the, the soil was the cypherpunks. So we, we pretty much covered that so far. And then the, the last one would be gardening. You know, Satoshi, he, I think, you know, and I'm, I'm extrapolating here a bit, but based on, based on his understanding of the history of money and really, I think if you look at like Nick Szabo's article, Shelling Out, which is around the origins of money, it's clear that Satoshi read that and other pieces of content and that that informed some of his decision-making in terms of how he crafted Bitcoin. And so when it comes to his gardening techniques, 
you know, I really feel that he wanted to create this, this aura of a mythological sort of founder. Satoshi stayed pseudonymous the entire time. No one knows who he is. By the way, I use the word, if everyone's been wondering, I use the word he because that's what he chose on his P2P foundation profile. So I'm honoring his, his wishes there. Satoshi wanted to make sure that everyone could, whatever version of Satoshi you want him to be, you can make that. Tall, short, funny, not funny. You can kind of you know, add whatever color you'd like him to be and make him kind of fit every single person's, what we would anticipate him looking like or, or being like. And so that ensures maximal narrative fit in terms of founder fit. And Satoshi, unlike every other founder in history, didn't touch the money. Satoshi has never moved his coins since they were originally mined. Now, could he move those at a later date? Sure. But it's been 10 years. And I think Satoshi, in his gardening and making sure that Bitcoin was, was well prepared to, to weather the elements, wanted to make sure that its origins were as sound and fair as possible. You know, for example, Bitcoin didn't have a price for a year and a half. So all those early mined Bitcoins were circulated freely amongst different participants. And it was largely a passion project. No one, no one was buying the ICO. No one pre-mined. No one was buying mining equipment waiting for, for Bitcoin to begin. It was purely the true believers, the believers who, who put all their risk on the line to spend computing power and time to go mine these worthless coins. And so, you know, the gardening amongst all wants to be this most solid way to, to make sure that the young the young organism can survive. And, and Satoshi, I think, in addition to making the launch fair, uh, never spending his money, also had a staying pseudonymous. He was very, very nice when he talked in the forums. He wanted to make sure that everyone felt empowered to go build the things that they wanted to build. He got a lot of negativity. In fact, the first reply on the cypherpunk mailing, or the cryptographer mailing list is a cypherpunk going, hey, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> so his patience and his understanding, his ability to walk away. So in, in 2011, he walks away from the project. All of that lead to enabling Bitcoin to have the kind of strongest roots and strongest ability to grow. And, and that's what he wanted to empower Bitcoin with. You, you brought up comparisons to religion uh, at times. And in some ways, you know, the, the Bitcoin white paper and, and the Bible, or I guess what is similar is that people are left interpreting it because the original scribe is, is no longer around. What can we learn from how people have interpreted a traditional religious text to thus interpret the Bitcoin white paper and Satoshi's vision? Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant question. You know, I think if we look at like the origins of the Bible, where the Bible, the New Testament wasn't assembled right after Jesus's death, it was assembled over a period of time a period of time that's sort of debatable as to how long it took to then, you know, then to assemble the, the new Testament. You know, I think it's something that's currently happening with Bitcoin as well is that there was a little bit left open to interpretation. I think the only way to, and again, it doesn't matter necessarily what his vision was. It matters where we are now and how the, how the protocol is being used and it and all of us together who believe and store our money in the protocol to believe the same thing. And in Bitcoin largely, I think it is that now. I think it's a lot of people early on were very disingenuous with how they interpreted things. Uh, I don't think I, I have an opinion on it and I'm, I'm under, under the illusion that my, my version is right, but certainly other people by not including all data possible definitely indicate that they're not willing to look at this objectively. And so I think, 
like any religion, I think there's there's factions vying for power and and I think with Bitcoin, since a lot of it's transparent, open, and and these discussions are public on Twitter and forums, I think it's trended towards what is the most accurate interpretation over time. You know, given this only happened eight years ago, unless you tell me differently, it's it's not a hundred percent clear that Satoshi is dead. So let's let's talk about Satoshi. You know, when he walked away, I guess a few questions. One, why did he have to walk away? I understand why you have to be anonymous, but why why you have to walk away? And could he come back? <laughs> um, and I'm curious why there isn't more sort of messiah narrative coming back narratives. What are your, what are your thoughts on all this? Like uh, Satoshi is risen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Satoshi can certainly come back. There's a lot of people that believe that maybe he died. Uh, no, no one knows, right? And for his own privacy and his intention, I really hope he doesn't ever get found because I, I just don't think that's what he would want. And it also puts then it makes it a little bit less, I think, magical. Why did he leave? What, what was the reason? I, some people can point to Big, a WikiLeaks accepting Bitcoin as being one. Uh, Satoshi says, you know, we've kicked, kicked the hornet's nest and now the, and now they're on their way over here. And I think that, again, plays into his his role as a gardener. He wanted to make sure that Bitcoin it wasn't subject to a, an, an unnecessarily large storm before it grew tall. Luckily, Bitcoin survived. But... You know, some people point to that as, you know, I think that was one of uh, Satoshi's last messages, if not the last one. So some people point to that as the reason why he left. I think that moment, it might have been that moment in combination with the realization that if he sticks around the NSA with the metadata collection that they're doing would be likely capable of de-anonymizing him, which would undermine the entire reason why he stayed anonymous for so long. Oh, Also, at the same time, Jeff Garzik said he was going to go talk to the CIA about Bitcoin. So this all kind of happens at the same time. I think those moments made Satoshi reflect. And again, I'm extrapolating a lot here. <laughs> this is not, <laughs> this is my interpretation. I believe he saw this and he goes, okay, you know what? It's probably time for me to walk away. Bitcoin needs to survive on its own. With me as a centralized founder, it'll never be able to like come, come from under my wing unless it, it figures out how to uh, survive on its own right now. And, and if I stick around for any longer, I, I threaten its own existence. And do you think he would have been shocked with what, what came next in their intervening eight years, you know, the whole ICO boom, I mean, you know, Ethereum, all these other projects, how would he have seen what came later in your view? Yeah. The, uh, the kind of the, the Cambrian explosion of different uh, species of money, certain, certainly with the ICO boom in, in 2014, the altcoin boom, uh, or those are kind of like the eras traditionally sort of, that's how people traditionally refer to them. But yeah, I, I think he would, I think he'd probably be excited. You know, any liberty, he very much leans libertarian in his writings. And I think libertarians are always for freedom of speech, freedom to do what you'd like. So I think he'd be very excited to see that there's all these different variations of his original dream. I think maybe, maybe that and also disappointed as well. I think the ICO boom didn't really reflect anything of what us early believers really believed in estimated 99.9% of ICOs were done in a manner that are very unethical. I think even the ones that are very well pedigreed were done unethically. I'm not afraid to speak out about it or or talk about it now, just because I think when we look back on this, we're going to be a little bit embarrassed that this happened. You know, there's certain sort of things that we can use to evaluate if a project ever has the capability of, of actually working. And these were all kind of like dead on arrival. For example, a lot of ICOs vested their founders like, 
50% vesting schedules day one. And just some really unethical things that I, th- I think Satoshi would be not surprised. I don't think he'd be surprised to see it because he built Bitcoin knowing that humans are greedy and he sort of configured incentives around that. But I think he'd be disappointed that not more people wanted to, to really embrace the idea of freedom or at least give it, you know, if you're going to make another competing cryptocurrency, at least give it a shot to survive and give it a shot to, to do something good for the world instead of just trying to pump and dump and, and make millions of dollars on the backs of a bunch of, a bunch of normal people. Yeah. It is interesting. You know, we joke about the different, different eras, you know, we're sort of right now living in history, but one day, you know, this will be in, in the history books. Who's going to write the history? Like who, how are we going to determine what, what is the, because, you know, as we, as we, you know, you're a fan of Austrian economics. I am too. Like you, people who wrote the history, economics history books are not Austrian economists, right? Who's going to be writing the mainstream economic history books, you know, 50 years from now, hundred years from now. That's a great question. And I think that's originally what kind of prompted me to start writing my own content. I didn't really consider myself a writer, but I was there early in the, in the early days of Bitcoin and in the early days in the San Francisco, San Francisco Bitcoin community. And so, and then I felt like some narratives weren't being covered as well as I'd like them to be. So I'm like, well, what if I craft my own narrative? And mine, typically I like to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And it's something that I work on on like my Sundays over the course of a few months. So you know, I'm not here to say that anyone else's content is good or bad. I publish my own thoughts, and it turns out a lot of people agreed with me in the, in the crypto community. But I think everyone deserves a voice, and we're all looking for what narratives really resonate with people. And I think it's sort of a uh, pathfinding mission to figure out what that narrative is and, and what's going to be compelling. And you know, I think there, I, I hope that that the Bitcoin's history will be written and in you know, at least objective or, or tried to be as objective as possible and trying to be as, you know, data-driven as possible versus a lot of history books, which um, are filled with information that largely reflects the, the nature of who won a war or the nature of the government's wishes on the population. Like you mentioned, uh, what, what do economics books teach kids? It doesn't, they don't teach them at Austrian School of Economics. It's certainly more Keynesian. Uh, so yeah, I, I just hope that with the internet today and with the ability for us all to speak freely and openly that the narrative that is cast uh, over time reflects the reality of what happened. Yeah. And I, I want to transition into, into narratives, but, but first I want to, want to ask one more question about, you mentioned the, the 20 million, 1 million hard cap and, and um, the no inflation. Why couldn't um, Satoshi have made a sort of decentralized yet inflationary system or, or, or why was that a, a poor choice to do so because the fact that there's inflation is separate from the fact that inflation can be changed uh, at will what are your thoughts there yeah that's a that's a great question it's something that's kind of being currently debated in the bitcoin community and based on you know my research on satoshi and based on and by the way this is all public information anyone can look this up and based on the you know original my my kind of deep love and, and understanding of Austrian School of Economics, Satoshi designed Bitcoin with a 21 million hard cap for two reasons. One, and this also goes back to Satoshi being a brilliant marketer, is that he built a viral loop in Bitcoin's core protocol, and that is the halvening event. So what happens is that Bitcoin produces X amount of Bitcoins per block, so every 10 minutes, and it produces those those until the until a certain date around 2140 when the production of new Bitcoins stops. And so it's essentially the supply curve or issuance curve of Bitcoins over time. 
to reach that objective of having a final 21 million limit, it needs to print a decreasing amount uh, through time. And so that's it's called a, te- technically called a disinflationary pol- monetary policy, uh, which eventually becomes a deflationary monetary policy. And so how that works is every four years, the number of Bitcoins that are produced every uh, certain sort of time cadence is cut in half. And what we've seen is that when that, that moment happens, uh, so those miners to produce those Bitcoins require a certain amount of work and that work costs money. And so when miners mine a Bitcoin, they need to sell it pretty quickly in order to recoup uh, their costs that they, they had to incur by buying the mining equipment or the, the computer, computer equipment, essentially, uh, and then the electricity costs that they paid. So they're having to sell those. Uh, so the price of any asset moves up or down based on demand, supplier demand changing to have the market move up. If supply drops in half, like the Bitcoin issuance does, and demand stays the same, then the price starts to move up as there's there's less Bitcoins to purchase on a daily basis. So what happens with that too is that demand overshoots supply. So now if I make a video game and a lot of people want to buy a sword that I made in the video game for my my users, if a lot of people want it, I'm just going to print more, more swords. Bitcoin doesn't have that. So this is something called a supply response in the commodities market. When more demand for a commodity increases, the supply typically has a supply response to that increase in demand. Bitcoin doesn't have that. It has a, that, that locked-in schedule of how many coins are going to be produced. And that schedule, the number of coins being produced drops over time. So what, that, what happens with that is that there are booms and busts. And that's why a lot of people are like, oh, man, Bitcoin is so volatile how could it ever be used as a currency? Well, Satoshi made it that way. He even has a comment where he goes, as more people buy into it, price increases, increasing awareness and attracting new, new people. So you can imagine the booms and busts in Bitcoin essentially being a giant wave of awareness, a collapse, and the true believers, the true believers in this new financial system and the, and the promises that Bitcoin offers, they stay. And that's the core new layer, the core new foundation for the for the believers in this new financial system. And that has happened over a few times now to where the boom happens. A lot of people hear about it, bust happens and some people stay, but most people leave. And, you know, it's kind of like come for the trading and, and gambling, but stay for the revolution. And so that that's one big reason why Satoshi had a 21 million hard cap with a decreasing supply uh, issuance schedule is that it brings in waves in terms of booms and busts. And second, Satoshi even kind of, I, I would interpret, again, it's an interpretation, humorously touches this topic where he goes, I would have had an inflation rate if we could have had a trusted third party. <laughs> the, whole, the whole point of Bitcoin is not to have a third party. <laughs> so, so I think it was said in jest. It seems to be a little sarcastic. But essentially, Satoshi's right to pick an inflation rate is impossible. You have to ingest all the data points around all the possible decisions that each consumer and business makes in the entire world. You have to ingest that data, which is impossible, parse the data, which is impossible, analyze the data, which is impossible, and then and then be able to press levers to influence that rate, which is semi-possible. An analogy I came, came up with is that the Federal Reserve is the driver of a car and the car being the economy. And they're looking in the rear view mirror, which is all their historical data, and they're attempting to see through a very foggy, very, very foggy, you know, uh, windshield because we can't see the future. So they're kind of having to guess. And they're, and they're using that to navigate. And then when they decide to make a decision, 
and they press the, the brake or the gas or they move the steering wheel, it might have a, a 30 second delay. And so, you know, what Bitcoin assumes is that it's impossible to, to properly manage an economy and that all the participants, participants in the economy essentially should kind of self-regulate itself. Uh, by introducing an inflation rate, there will constantly be an argument as to what the proper rate of inflation will be. So Satoshi didn't program it with one. If you, uh, you know, world-class economists or people who run the Federal Reserve or if, you know, people like Todd Cowan will be like, hey, you know, the Fed works, works well. It's, you know, had consistent inflation for the last X many years at a, at a stable rate. You, you, we can quibble on, on those points. But I guess my question is, what's going to need to be true for them to sort of admit, not that they were wrong necessarily, but that Bitcoin has more merit than they, than they these points that you just brought up have more merit than, than they, they currently think right now? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. And I think Bitcoin is so hard for people to grasp because it touches on all these different points, whether it be cryptography or distributed systems or incentive models, monetary policy. It's really hard for people to have a, a breadth of knowledge that touches on all these topics. And so I think, you know, for a lot of these individuals in powerful positions and in financial institutions, I think when they when they re-examine their faith in the existing financial system, they'll look for answers somewhere else. And Bitcoin is one answer of some, uh, of many other options, including like gold. But Bitcoin, I think when they start and actually care enough to read about it, care enough to spend a few, few afternoons on their weekends, which these individuals are very busy, so I understand that they haven't. I think when they start to challenge their own assumptions with the existing system, when, when the nature of the reality is questioned, they'll look to other answers to help formulate what the nature of the reality should be. And I think Bitcoin is a pretty compelling answer. Let's talk about some of the misconceptions people have around Bitcoin. One of them is around uh, Bitcoin's energy expenditure. And that's sort of a big thing that people, people bring up. So perhaps you can sort of give a, a little bit of an intro to how Bitcoin mining works and then uh, talk about some of the, you know, address some of the concerns that people have around its environmental impact. Yeah, so the, the TLDR of how Bitcoin mining works is that Bitcoin takes energy or in the form of electricity and it, it takes that energy and then it uses a very, very specialized processor called an ASIC and that stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit. And it takes that energy, runs it through that processor to guess many, 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 many times. So you can think of Bitcoin mining as a, as a uh, kind of like bingo or a lottery and every single time you do a hash, you're essentially essentially casting a new lottery ticket. And then the amount of Bitcoins uh, that are... Pro- so these miners, what they do is they take that electricity, throw, it flows through their, their processor, it gives them a lot of guesses or gets them a lot of lot- lottery tickets. And then every 10 minutes when a new block is found, the, <clears throat> the Bitcoin blockchain randomly chooses the winning lottery ticket. And that winning lock- lottery ticket gets the Bitcoins in that block the big new Bitcoins that were produced. And it also gets the, the coin, the uh, Bitcoin transactions that, that occurred in that block. It, it, they get the, uh, the transaction fee that was attached to those Bitcoins. They don't get the Bitcoins themselves. They get the transaction fee that people paid to get their Bitcoin included in that, in that time block. So with this, Bitcoin uses an immense amount of energy. So people look at Bitcoin's mining operation. And they're like, Oh my man, you know, we can directly quantify with with a good amount of probabilistic understanding that Bitcoin uses a ton of electricity and they don't really dig in past that. They just kind of see this big number and get worried. 
And what I want to hammer home is that Bitcoin, to protect things in the real world, no one would question that you should build walls and vaults and have guns to, to protect the world around us, to protect the things that we love and care about. But how do we do that in, in the digital world? Well, what Bitcoin does is it takes energy in the, in the real world and uses that to build walls around our digital world or around, the, around Bitcoin's ledger. It's a, it's a wall of pure energy to protect Bitcoin's ledger. And what's beautiful about that is that there's no way to cheat it. So the only way to cheat it is to essentially spend the exact same amount of energy that it took to make the wall to dismantle the wall. And so there's no way to forage that. There's no way to fake electricity. There's only one way to fake it, and is you have to do the proof of work. And that's what proof of work stands for, is that it provably shows that you use the physical energy necessary to, do, to cast those lottery tickets. And so uh, some, some people look at that number and they're like, man, that's a lot of electricity. But I, I think you know, from a fundamental level, everything in the whole world requires electricity. So laws of thermodynamics here. Whether you eat a burger, whether you walk around or, or watch the Kardashians, that all requires energy. And, and so first, everything in the world requires energy. Bitcoin uses energy to build walls around things that we care about, the people that subjectively, subjectively believe in Bitcoin. Um, and no one would question if you did that in the real world. And, you know, I think when people look at Bitcoin's electricity usage, it's just so, so much more explicit than everything else. So in the, in the real world, you know, what is the energy usage of all the central banks in the world, all the bank branches? Think about every time you drive past a bank, the, the cost to build that building, the, the cost of the food, the energy requirements of the food to feed the workers who built the building, the food to feed the workers that work in the building, and then all the server costs and, uh, and all the paper they produce. You know, it, it goes on and on and on. You know, and then we look at gold production and the cost of gold mining, and it goes on and on and on. And if we look at that and we look at the best estimates of how much it costs to mine gold, how much it costs to run the, the banking system, Bitcoin consumes magnitudes less electricity. And that's with our best estimates. So Bitcoin, relative to all other uses of energy to produce money, is much less than what they require. And I think to kind of really you know, bring this home, who has the moral authority to say what a good or bad use case of electricity is? I mean, it's completely ridiculous that someone could think they could criticize my usage of, of electricity for Bitcoin, which, by the way, I paid for. It's not like I stole it. But then they go sit on their couch, eat their bag of chips that cost a ton of electricity to produce, and then watch the Kardashians. You know, so it, it's, I think it's something that people don't think about a lot. And that's why their first gut reaction is that, oh, man, Bitcoin uses a lot of electricity. So I don't fault them for, for going back to like their initial gut reaction. But I would implore them to be a little bit more uh, objective when they when they criticize something. How should people think about uh, at a high level proof of work versus proof of stake or other consensus mechanisms? What are the what are the trade offs? Yeah, so you know I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and caveat that I don't know as much about proof of stake, but but it's, and I don't wanna and I I wouldn't claim I'm an expert, but essentially proof of stake is trying to emulate proof of work via methods of staking capital to vote on something and in the in the off chance that you and other people try to behave poorly your money gets burnt sort of a a methodology to keep you honest and so i think with proof of stake a lot of the hypothetical um trade-offs would be that you know you use less electricity 
And I would position it as, as kind of like, well, first, Bitcoin doesn't waste any electricity. It uses it as efficiently as possible to build walls of energy around the ledger that we want to protect. And proof of stake wants to try to do that by faking it. And I like the simplicity of something where there is no way to fake it. And Nick Zabo, one of the original cypherpunks, calls this unforgeable costliness. And it's just like gold mining. There's no way to alchemy, use alchemy to create gold. Uh, the only way to do it is to dig it out of the ground or find it, find it somewhere that's really hard to get. And that's really important because, one, there's no way to, to forge it. And if there's ever a way to circumvent it, and your protocol is the, the backbone of the world's financial system, that's a significant risk. And I think the trade-off to maybe use a little bit less electricity, which, by the way, proof of stake still requires a good amount of electricity, to trade off the less less use of electricity, or I would say arguably is still using electricity or energy, but it's just obfuscating that, that proof of work to, to optimize for that parameter at the potential fault of the core foundation of the protocol, I think is an unacceptable trade-off on personally. Let's transition a little bit into narratives. You recently wrote this piece called Quantum Narratives. Talk about what, what you were trying to do uh, in that piece. Yeah, so I, you know, I've been around in the, in the crypto scene for over, so I, I first got into it in 2012 and then 2013 built my first product. And I've seen kind of the, the ebb and flow of narratives or the ebb and flow of what's interesting and what's, what's attractive for that moment and, and, and how, how people craft their beliefs around these narratives and how narratives kind of propagate beliefs. And so, you know, that combined with, you know, I spent two years at Uber you know, also seeing kind of the trends where, you know, Uber was perceived as a very hot company. And then uh, there was a moment where a kind of scandal broke out and just seeing how fast narratives can move and, and how they change things and how they change behavior was really interesting to me. And so with quantum narratives, I argue that in the 2017 ICO bubble, and I saw this in the 2014 altcoin bubble as well, is that, you know, it's really kind of like Schrodinger's cat, where if, for people unfamiliar with this uh, thought experiment it's that in the and this is part of quantum quantum physics is that when we can't observe something that it actually exists in multiple states at the same time and then upon observation those states collapse into reality which is only one state and so i argue that narratives these narratives behind certain tokens behind certain types of tokens like for example ethereum being a world computer or you know, a token might have a narrative of being Uber on the blockchain. These narratives can are kind of like kind of bubbling up, and they're in this they're in this state where they all exist simultaneously, and they're all equally valid states of reality. But upon critical observation, they collapse upon what is what is real. And I think 2017 to 2000 to, to, to right now is the representation of the collapse of that narrative wave function. So or the quantum wave function. It's the collapse of all possible narratives that could exist onto reality or what, what can these protocols actually do from a uh, product mindset? How are they solving a problem for a customer? And in before in, in the very frothy 2017 bubbly market, any narrative could exist because it wasn't critically observed. But upon critical observation, we're seeing those narratives collapse and what narratives will remain. Uh, what narratives are do have product market fit, and so at, at the end of the article, 
I have a data visualization of the top 10 cryptocurrencies since 2013 and the rise and fall of their prices because prices ultimately reflect the belief in that narrative. And so I, I felt that that was a good representation of the ebb and flow of these narratives over time and the most recent kind of collapse of all these potential realities into what is real uh, over the last couple of years. And you've been in San Francisco. How have you seen both as you've been there and, and, and even before then San Francisco or Silicon Valley and the tech community treat Bitcoin? How has that evolved over time? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's been really interesting. When I was here in January, 2013, Bitcoin was not cool. <laughs> it was, there was only 15 of us at the meetup in San Francisco. I think I was the, one of the only non-technical ones. And I mean, you know, I'd go on dates and I'd go to like dinner parties and talk to people about Bitcoin. And I was looked at as kind of a lunatic, I, you know, and I, I totally get where they're coming from because at that time, all they read it on CNN and ABC and NBC and all, all they ever watched or read was, you know, Bitcoin is used by money launderers and drug dealers or Bitcoin is just used for the Silk Road. And so that largely influenced their perception about Bitcoin. And so that was kind of like, you know, I remember talking to my dad about it on Thanksgiving and he's a CPA and <laughs> I don't think he was super happy about it. <laughs> but but then March 2013 hit and that's when Bitcoin went from $10 to 260 And that is when it became really popular in San Francisco. The meetup now had 200 people. It was, it was a ton of VCs walking around looking at like, hey, what's hot? What's the next startup to invest in? You know, tons of different like conferences popping up. You know, we had the May 2013 San Jose Bitcoin conference. That was the biggest conference that, that had ever been thrown. Uh, we had the Winko Vi twins as the thought, as the kind of like thought leader uh, celebrity personalities there. They really brought a lot of credibility to Bitcoin back in that day. They were like one of the first well-known people to really go, oh, Bitcoin could be a thing. And I think, yeah, around then from, you know, uh, March to, to May, that was like when it got hot. And then the price went down to, $100. And then later in 2013, in November, December, it peaked again to 1200. And that was the second big wave in 2013. And that also brought in a new wave of adherents and believers and investments. Uh, that's when my first company that I created at ZeroBlock was acquired by blockchain.com, um, a popular wallet provider in its time. And so, you know, that was largely Bitcoin related. Uh, there weren't really there. I think Litecoin existed, but Ethereum didn't exist until I, I think 2015. I think the crowd sale might've been in 2014, but uh, the only crypto back then that was really interesting was, was Bitcoin. Now 2014, there was a lot of other cryptocurrencies created. For example, one that I actually mined in my own computer was called PrimeCoin. What PrimeCoin did is it used the proof of work function to find prime numbers. Uh, the idea being that proof of work isn't useful enough already maybe that proof of work could do something more useful, which is finding prime numbers as well. Uh, so there, there was a whole Cambrian explosion of different types of these. Uh, for example, Dogecoin is a very popular one that people still remember, which is just a, a kind of a meme coin. It was a funny, you know, funny dog face on a coin, uh, which really speaks to that. These are all these coins are really just narratives that people are buying narratives and that these ebb and flow over time. And that's reflecting the price. And then, and then those kind of went away uh, in the, in the, 2015, you know, 2014 to 2016, there was the blockchain, not Bitcoin movement, where Wall Street largely felt that Bitcoin's utility was in the blockchain tech uh, rather than Bitcoin itself or cryptocurrencies. And then, uh, and so Silicon Valley, I think, kind of largely just became disinterested during that stage. Uh, Silicon Valley really isn't into big corporate sort of like infrastructure ledger tech. This is not very exciting. 
Uh, there was a lot of com- companies working on it, but that was kind of largely the narrative then. And then in 2016, 2017, that's when the ICO narrative came about, which was largely fueled by the launch of Ethereum. And the launch of Ethereum uh, before, you know, a year before that, it was really perfectly positioned for Silicon Valley mental models. Uh, Vitalik is an expert marketer, and he crafted Ethereum's narrative to fit exactly what Silicon Valley had always wanted, which is a decentralized world computer, a a decentralized platform and apps. I mean, he's using language that fits exactly how they think. And so Ethereum kind of brought about this renewed energy uh, into the space based on Vitalik's marketing of Ethereum. And so 2016, 2017 largely reflects a lot of the other kind of fancy, I would say fanciful ideas around what we could do with, with, with cryptocurrencies that or blockchains that had a token what could we do? Could we build a decentralized Uber? Could we build a decentralized Facebook? Could we do all the things on the blockchain? And I think, I think, you know, largely Ethereum has not executed on that narrative. You couldn't run Facebook for a second on Ethereum, even if you had all of Ethereum's throughput for the entire year. So I think it was a little bit disingenuous in terms of how it was marketed. It's, it's been almost five years since they first marketed it. And I think it has, has largely not achieved that. And so Vital, uh, Silicon Valley became enamored with Ethereum, not in addition to the marketing, but also for the developer worship. Vitalik is a very, very quintessential, you know, wunderkind. You know, he's a very, he was 19 when he made it. He's got a giant brain. He's very skinny. He kind of epitomizes the, the you know, really, really nerdy, intelligent developer who can build something magical. And Silicon Valley wanted to believe. They wanted to believe in something new that was going to change the world. They, they felt bored. You know, as I forget who said this, but they're like, instead of flying cars, all we got was 140 characters. And so Vitalik gave them that. And, you know, a lot of these investors and developers in, in Silicon Valley really wanted to believe in this next wave of decentralization, which I think is great. Like, I think a lot of people really resonated with that message because it's a message of freedom. You know, I, I think so. I think that kind of enamored Silicon Valley. So that's like been the last, last narrative wave of of what's kind of. And then, but unfortunately, in that same wave, uh, Silicon Valley doesn't really. And, and Eric, you wrote a great piece on this, where it sort of isolates like uh, how Bitcoiners think versus uh, the rest of the space thinks. And I think it's because Silicon Valley doesn't really understand money or economics or monetary policy, so they became enamored with Ethereum. And then it was positioned that Bitcoiners are Luddites and, and conservative and stuck in the mud. And, and it's, it's a bunch of, you know, really angry guys who just don't know anything about tech. And actually, it's the, the, the real narrative is that Bitcoin develop, the core development team, Bitcoin believers believe in optimizing for different parameters. They believe that, hey, we shouldn't trade off to be able to do all these you know, decentralized applications, we shouldn't trade what makes what makes Bitcoin valuable to begin with, which is its decentralization. And we shouldn't trade this for that and a bunch of other trade-offs as well. And so I think I'm, I'm a little disappointed with Silicon Valley and their, their kind of inability to really spend time to build other mental models outside of, outside of tech. They just looked at both protocols in terms of code and largely didn't really evaluate it with like incentive alignment or monetary policy or anything else that I would consider to be relevant in determining what is interesting. In the 
2008 bear market 2019, we've seen kind of a resurgence of people coming back to Bitcoin that are caring enough to go spend the time to read up on it, to read up as to why Bitcoin matters. And so I, I found that personally very exciting. It is a line out of injuries and Horowitz or, or, or people like that who are obviously very smart. It would be uh, something like, hey, trust. The real revolution here is, is trust as a primitive and money is the first application, the killer application. Do you think that understates the importance of money or is incorrect in some way? So I, you know, I, I want to applaud A16Z for their huge commitment to the community and very early commitment to the crypto community in terms of them, you know, especially Mark Andreessen being really vocal about how much he believes in Bitcoin and in the crypto community. So I think they've played, they continue to play a very important part. You know, when it comes to, hey, is Bitcoin an application or a platform? I do think that Bitcoin is more of a platform rather than just the first application. I think that the way that Bitcoin and Ethereum or Ethereum-minded people uh, approach product development and, and, and how the roadmap has been laid out, I think they're approaching the, the, the objective the same way. They're, they're approaching the same objective, but they're just appro- their, their attack vector is different. So I think the way that Bitcoiners think is that core, if you want to rebuild the capital markets, if you want to rebuild the world's financial system, you have to start with money. And if we can trust in that, in that core layer, and that layer has been built to be super robust. It's been, be, it's been built to withstand attacks from the, the greatest attackers being states. If we can do that, then we can layer everything else on top of it. It's kind of like a solid way to build a building, is that you build that concrete foundation, and then you build everything else on top. And so I think that's how the – it doesn't necessarily mean, mean – you know, I think Bitcoin can do a lot of things Ethereum can do if we look at future developments over the next couple of years with mast, graft root, and taproot. I think the Bitcoin community and core development team have made very logical decisions to build features that give Bitcoin protocol market fit for their customer right now. And it does have that very, very well. And then they'll just continue to iterate and build out that roadmap to solve other problems and make Bitcoin more scalable in a very careful way. Because if you're rebuilding the world's financial system, you cannot mess up, you know, but enable people to experiment on top of it. And I think lightning, which we might talk about here in a minute is a great example of that. It's, it's layer two and doesn't necessarily bring any risk to Bitcoin's layer one, which is the core protocol. I think with Ethereum, Ethereum has a startup, uh, startup mindset of move fast and break things. And that's not necessarily wrong. It just depends on how you apply that mindset with the type of product that you're building. You certainly wouldn't apply that same mindset to building Boeing 747s. But it's fine if you apply that mindset to building uh, a new application to uh, show people the weather. So, you know, I think that's what makes Silicon Valley so enamored with Ethereum is that they wanted to give you all these shiny things that you could go build. But what we're also seeing, too, is that while there has been over $400 billion invested into ERC-20, uh, ERC-20 tokens in the Ethereum block, like invested in as in buying the Ethereum blockchain, there is almost no DAP that has traction or protocol market fit. There's no demand. Uh, it's a bunch of supply side, a bunch of applications that have been built out with very little users. And to be clear for the people that may go, okay, well, what is Bitcoin useful for? Well, Bitcoin is useful as a store of value. It's useful as a gold 2.0. I would argue that that is its original purpose. It's been executed along that path the entire time to become a gold 2.0. The usage of being a gold 2.0, which people go, oh, well, how's, how's a store of value use case? Well, it's a use case for a lot of things. Gold, fiat currency, real estate all reflect stores of value. It's I want to store my money in something that can't be seized. 
And I think Bitcoin is largely executed and largely fits that use case. And that's what a lot of people are using it for. So I do believe it has found protocol market fit. And the, if, if we remember Chris Dixon's famous why decentralization matters medium post, he, 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 he underplayed the, this is a couple years ago, I think, but he underplayed the money crypto narrative, but really uh, sort of outlined the, the tech crypto narrative, uh, which is more around, you know, mutual stakeholding and more democratic internet, you know, more broadly aligned economic incentives between, you know, users, developers, you know, people on the platforms. And do you think that the tech crypto narrative and money crypto narrative are both true and can coexist? Do you think the tech crypto narrative is just a much smaller subset of, of, of where overall value will be? How do you square b- both of those narratives? Yeah, so I, I think they're both, well, it's kind of tough, right? So I, I think when it comes to, I think everyone saw Bitcoin and they saw how magical it was and how it aligned incentives so perfectly that this was this was incredible. And that and it got them really creative and they were like, well, what other ways can we do this? And at the same time, I want to make sure I'm not splitting hairs too much because I, I do believe that the word blockchain and crypto has kind of become all-encompassing for like tech innovation as a whole or decentralized ledgers or incentive alignment or this or that or, or, or cryptography. And so I feel that, you know, it's hard to parse out what the origination of how that terminology is used and what it exactly means, because if it's on a, on a, like a, an actual like Bitcoin-esque blockchain, um, it's really hard to get some of these things done right. So I think they're not irreconcilable. I think it's just getting incentives right and getting everything configured right is really, really hard. And I've got a great example from Uber. You know, and I can't talk about exactly what it was, but what happened is we tweaked a parameter for our drivers. We tweaked an incentive. And Uber has had this marketplace for 10 years. And we've got the best data scientists in the world. We've got the most knowledgeable data scientists in the world. And we control many, many levers to then influence the supply and demand, the drivers and the riders, to make sure that, you know, if I'm on a street corner, that someone's going to come pick me up. Or if I'm a driver, that there are plenty of riders to take rides, so I'll make money. And so we tweaked one parameter for the drivers, and this had been vetted by the best data scientists, the data scientists who built these models, and by the by certain management positions. That all got vetted. And when we rolled it out, we noticed, oh, oh, oh no. This is uh this is drivers are are taking advantage of the incentive in a way that we didn't expect. And it was destabilizing the supply-demand modeling. And so it was in that experience of seeing a room of some of the brightest people in the world who have full knowledge of this and have levers to control it that made me realize, man, incentives are hard. Incentives are really, really hard. You know, if you, if you don't tweak them just right, people will take advantage of them. And so, you know, I'm all down for experimenting with incentives. I think the world, especially if we look at like, as a, as a retail investor, you, you can't invest alongside um, accredited investors or institutional investors, I think there's a clamoring for equality. And I like that. And I, I hope we definitely build products and we make a world that enables that, you know, getting those right on a decentralized protocol that cannot be stopped, I think is extremely difficult. Uh, Bitcoin is the first example of that working. I think we'll, we'll find others. So I don't think they're irreconcilable. So TLDRs, I don't think they're irreconcilable. I think they're reconcilable. Uh, I think it's going to be very hard, uh, very, very hard. And I haven't really seen a lot of people given enough effort for me to become interested. I think a lot of people go, oh, well, you've just got this adversarial mindset as a Bitcoiner, like you're being hyper paranoid. And I'm like, no, I'm building systems and I want to develop a mindset that builds a rigorous system. 
and what I saw at Uber and what I've seen with Bitcoin, it, it takes a lot to get those incentives aligned. And so I'd like to see some of those kind of like decentralized web projects that are trying to align incentives. I'd like to see them be a little bit more critical and a little bit more objective when they, when they go build these things, because you have these protocols where the founders have 40% of the tokens. And it's like, well, I don't care how cool you align the incentives. It's always going to look unfair or X, Y, and Z. There's all sorts of other critical issues. And then they, they complain that you're not being open-minded enough. And I'm like, I'm being open-minded. You just presented me with something that's very poor. And so I don't agree that I should look at this and be excited. Totally. And it is interesting because you know, I'll talk to them you know, quite a bit, um, obviously, because I'm in Silicon Valley as well and, and very close with, with these firms. And they say something like, they sort of complain a little bit about some of the, um, you know, the Bitcoin maximalism is similar to if you took, you know, you started with HTTP and everyone's like, oh, this, this is the truth. This is the, the one and only. And then TCIP came around and you're like, no, 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 that's, uh, we can't, you know, we can't accept that. That can't, that can't coexist or, or that's a threat to HTTP. Do you think that's a flawed analogy? Well, I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin community claim like Bitcoin is TCP IP, where it really hasn't changed at all over the years. It's supposed to be that core backbone layer that everyone relies on. You know, when it comes to going like, hey, is Bitcoin the MySpace or the Facebook? I mean, that's more of an application analogy than a protocol analogy. But is, is Bitcoin the right protocol? You know, we have to look at this too to where like if we put on the money hat, if we put on like the money, like money crypto hat, people aren't just... You know they're not they're not just storing like tweets on on these blockchains. They're they're storing money, and money is is really a best representation of time and energy. I think of all the blood, sweat, and tears that you had to do to get that money. And so I think when we look at you know how does how do how do how do networks work? You know, Bitcoin is really a social money network, and I think the Winklevoss actually said this yesterday at South by Southwest. Um, it is like a social money network. But instead of us like getting on there and being able to talk to our friends, we take our money, which is stored time and energy, and we put that as a vote to believe in this new this new ledger, this new social network. And Bitcoin's social network is very strong. For example, if you go look at Google search trends and you look at the query by Bitcoin or by Ethereum or any other crypto you'd like, you know, Bitcoin has like 7x the search volume. And that's just one metric of many, but it's also reflected in the daily volume of Bitcoin being traded it's reflected in, in other metrics as well. So I think, you know, the closest analogy here is it's a network uh, combined with a financial effect combined with, I think, a, such a strong belief system. I mean, when you look at religions, polytheistic, uh, polytheism and, you know, polythe- like if I believe in many gods, I can, I can believe, I can also believe in your God as a mono, monotheistic belief system, but a monotheistic, theistic person won't believe in multiple gods. So I think Bitcoin believers believe in Bitcoin for many objective reasons and many rational reasons. I don't think it's just religious, but if you want to build a new protocol or a new network that has certain things tweaked to say, improve certain functionality, not only does it have to be better on a on an engineering basis, it has to be better on a social basis. And you have to convince all of these people that have stored their time and energy in one blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, to move it over to a new one. And so I don't think that's so easy. There's a lot of inertia involved there. Some people call that the Lindy effect. And I think that if you don't holistically look at these protocols together, it's going to be really tricky to convince someone to go, uh, to go switch. Yeah. And I think the complaint is more around TCP came, came around and then another protocol came around. Uh, or in, in times of the internet, perhaps people were more you know forgiving or, or, or pluralistic perhaps. Whereas as now, 
it's more seen as zero sum. Do you accept that framing? And if so, how do you, how do you explain it? Well, I mean, back in the, you know, back when the internet was first being developed, uh, there was a movement to have many different protocols for many different types of functionality. And there was a core group of essentially non, non-company affiliated individuals who really rallied behind TCP IP. And I don't want to dive in too deeply because I'm not going to pretend like I, I know the full story here, but that's at least what I've, I've somewhat read on a, on a skin deep level. And so if you look at that, it was a large portion of, of kind of many different people wanting many different languages to be spoken. One group going, well, how about we build a core language that everyone can build on top of? And if we build it correctly, then theoretically, yes, there might be something slightly more efficient, but if this becomes the shelling point for everyone to build on top of or for everyone to store their their, their money into, then that shelling point becomes so strong that it doesn't matter. You know, and, and there's sort of trade-offs with that too, because like, you know, yes, theoretically, there might be a better way to code up something, but these switching costs are very high. It, it, it's sort of a good enough philosophy. It doesn't necessarily have to be perfect, perfect, which I would argue Bitcoin is built extremely precisely. And I think in a way that's incredibly efficient and mature. Um, and to be clear, Bitcoin does push updates. And, and I think in a reasonably, in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So it's, it's, it's not like it's like set in stone forever. But yeah, I think like people can't, you know, people can't, for the world's financial system, you, you can't be constantly changing the core underlying base layer. And I, I think like, yes, there's still kind of a battle to be that base layer, but you have to get so many things right. And Bitcoin got a lot of those right. And I, I you know, I personally own Bitcoin and Ethereum, but you gotta, you gotta get so many of those right that it, it's really, really tricky. Before getting to lightning, just to close on narratives, is there something about crypto that lends itself to more and more narratives and you know high frequency of switching narratives than say other other platform shifts or other emerging technologies? Yeah. So when it comes to the the narratives ebbing and flowing for these different protocols back in the you know early days of the internet, uh, there wasn't a monetary token attached to it. So I think with crypto and with the ability for information, you know, this is pre-internet, right? So information couldn't flow nearly as fast. Uh, we're seeing sort of a compression of time to see these 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 narrative battles and these code battles and these this battle for philosophy and battle for to be the to be the backbone of the world's financial system uh, kind of play out in real time or at least in a, uh, compared to back in the day in accelerated time. So I, I, I'm really excited that there's a monetary association with this because it allows us to kind of distill. It, it leads itself to scammy behavior, but as well, it does give us the ability to kind of transparently see where the votes have been cast. Totally. So let's uh, let's talk about lightning. Lightning is is been held as the uh, as a, the promise for, for Bitcoin in so many ways. Talk about what is the utopia for for what lightning can do for for Bitcoin, and uh, and how has that evolved uh, over time, and where are we now? Yeah. So Bitcoin's development philosophy. They want to push innovation onto layers on top of Bitcoin. Uh, and Lightning is a great example of a layer two technology. So, you know, the TLDR of, of, of how Lightning works is essentially uh, two parties create a channel between each other and they send lots of Bitcoin back and forth to each other on this layer two called Lightning. And then after a certain, a certain amount of time that they've already agreed upon, the net value of all of their transactions back and forth are then printed on layer one. So, you and I transact a bunch of Bitcoins back together. We don't have to put all of those on the base layer to be efficient. We just take the the final value and then print that on the on the base layer. And so that efficiency 
that new layer two tech brings a lot of cool things. So what this does is it makes Bitcoin transactions really fast. Uh, they happen near instantaneously or within a few seconds. It also makes Bitcoin transactions very cheap to send a lightning payment. It costs, you know, it depends on how the, how the, how it's routed, but it can be cheaper than like a hundredth of a penny. So extremely cheap. And then it brings privacy. So right now every Bitcoin transaction is public and it's public and it's permanent with lightning. The, these are a little bit more private to where they're private. And if your lightning transaction gets routed through other participants, it becomes obfuscated. So for example, it's a little bit how like Tor works. You've got hops. And with those hops brings increasingly layers, increasing layers of uh, privacy. And so those are the three big uh, functional improvements to Bitcoin that Lightning brings. Now, I want to be clear, there's a whole host of user experience problems that need to be figured out. I am personally in the camp that believes that these are more linear problems and exponential, exponential but I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to pretend that Lightning is, is totally ready to go for the mainstream population now. You know, it reminds me of back when I was early in Bitcoin. There wasn't, <laughs> I downloaded the Bitcoin core development wallet, which is essentially the wallet that the Bitcoin core developers make. And, and let's put it this way. I think user experience was like the last thing they were thinking about, which I, I don't fault them for that. It, it's not their job. But, you know, Lightning similarly has a bunch of user experience issues that need to be figured out, but they're not impossible to figure out. So I'm really bullish. It brings about those three things that I mentioned, speed, uh, uh, cost, and and privacy. And I think that unlocks a lot of really cool use cases. And there's this, there is this belief that any sort of use cases we figure out or benefits we figure out in other protocols will eventually be adopted to into the Bitcoin network over time. Can you talk about what is the world in which that does happen and what is, what is the world in which that doesn't happen? Like, how could that play out either way? Yeah, so I like to use an analogy called horizontal gene transfer. And it's what mycelium use in order to, uh, they can essentially absorb the genetic code of other organisms. And so... Bitcoin has the same characteristic. It, it can absorb the genetic code of other types of cryptocurrencies where it finds a, a parameter valuable. And a few things that people are looking at now, uh, one that was implemented recently, which you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm going to admit, I don't really know if SegWit was a Lightning innovation or a Bitcoin one, but it did launch on Lightning first, uh, or, or sorry, it did launch on uh, Litecoin first. So SegWit was an imp- improvement in efficiency for layer, the layer one blockchain. And uh, Litecoin, a competing cryptocurrency, came out with it first, and then Bitcoin adopted it later. So that's a great example of, a, of one that actually happened. Uh, we have other, other ones as well around privacy. So I'd argue that Lightning kind of absorbs that privacy use case that these other cryptocurrencies are, are championing as their value add. Uh, now, Bitcoin also can look at the other ways they've approached privacy and potentially implement those. I believe like Bulletproofs, Mimblewimble, those are all explorations into how to make transactions more private. And those have all been explored in other chains. Bitcoin has the capability of making maybe Bitcoin transactions. I'm not advocating for this, but Bitcoin has the ability to make layer one transactions more private through Mimblewimble or Bulletproofs. And so those are examples of other genetic code that Bitcoin could, uh, could ingest. The, what, what protects against the trend towards centralization with Lightning? Why couldn't that happen? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people look at the hub and spoke model that, or at least they kind of see the, these these big hubs in the Lightning Network that are that have Lightning channels open with a lot of other participants, and they, they see that in their first 
uh, reaction is, oh man, it looks like a centralized system of hubs and spokes rather than like peer to peer or lots of different connections between lots of different participants. I think the difference here is that lightning, even if there is a hub connected with a lot of spokes, the hub doesn't get any more power over the spokes. And I think that's the important part to really consider is that centralization is, is the worry about it is the centralization of power. And so Bitcoin or sorry, lightning doesn't really have that lightning doesn't really bring a centralization of power. Participants can open up connections with any other lightning node that they'd like um, they can reroute around bad lightning nodes or ones that are acting poorly. And even if a big lightning node accepts many different channels, there are barrier, barriers in place to make sure that they don't abuse their very primitive and very useful and extremely, extremely hard to get around barriers that make uh, their position uh, not really that powerful. You know, if that gave, the position gave them a ton of power, I think that would be a concern. You mentioned that lightning never still in very early days what has it proven today and what, what still needs to, or to date and what still needs to be proven out? I think lightning proved that people are willing to jump over additional user experience thresholds to unlock greater functionality in Bitcoin. I think lightning is over the last couple of weeks, I've been approached by a lot of people who never really were interested in Bitcoin and lightning is really interesting for them because they're developers and they're looking for new technology on Bitcoin that enables them to build use cases that can tap into Bitcoin's much larger community of users. And so, you know, I think what's been, what's been solved now is they've gotten some clients out that people can use. There's been some good sort of test use cases of like, you know, you can try tipping on Twitter where uh, tip and me as a, as a Chrome extension where you can go in and essentially tip people lightning uh, to people on Twitter uh, using lightning. And so that's kind of a real, real good, I think, way to give people a first taste of, around how Lightning works. In terms of user experience thresholds in the future that it has to figure out, I mean, there's a whole myriad of them. Uh, right now, there's a lot of manual configuration where users constantly have to tweak different parameters. Now, now this is if they want to run their own node or run their own Lightning node instead of relying on like a custodial third party. A lot of Bitcoin people want people to run their own node because that gives them independence. You don't have to trust anyone. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of, there's a ton of user experience challenges around managing that node right now. And I, I think that's, that's really where a lot of, and, and provide, making sure that the channels have, a, have enough liquidity. Um, so these are things where, you know, looking at other examples in the world, you know, you could, you could look at any other sort of device that we've used and the first versions are typically very poor, it takes a lot of configuration, takes a lot of understanding about how it works. And then as the user experience get, gets better and better, those user experience layers obfuscate the original function, obfuscate the concerns that you have to have through the more efficient handling of the user interface with the underlying system. Totally. And how does Lightning affect Bitcoin security? That's a big concern for a lot of people with Bitcoin. And the idea is that, okay, well, if Lightning becomes popular, then there's not going to be a lot of transactions on layer one. Um, That essentially all those transactions will happen on layer two where they're much cheaper and because of that, miners will be paid uh, less in transaction fees. And those transaction fees, you know, those incentivize the miners to use that energy to build that, that energy wall around Bitcoin's ledger. And so I think when, it, when people look at this, I think, yeah, they're right. You know, some transactions will move to layer two as layer two brings about greater efficiency in speed, cost, and privacy. But... If we look at other things, and this is why I like to zoom out, I like to look at other industries because 
we can't just look at one in isolation. Uh, there's something called Jevons paradox and Jevons paradox says that as things become more efficient or you might say faster, cheaper or more private and then lightning lightning's example, as things become more efficient, people use more of it. And a good example of how this works is a uh, gas mileage. So current cars, gas mileage is much, much improved over, you know, in the sixties and seventies. And even though vehicles have become more efficient with the utilization of gasoline or hydrocarbons, even though they become more efficient, we use more of it. And, and that continually increases. And that's not just a population growth thing. That's a miles driven per vehicle metric. So I believe that as lightning unlocks greater use cases for Bitcoin, it also unlocks more usage, which means that net net, I think there will be more transactions on layer one because more demand for lightning channels to be open. And to be clear, to open up a lightning channel, you have to have one transaction to open it and one transaction to close it. So layer one on Bitcoin does become a representation of all of the activity on layer two. So I, I think long-term, it doesn't really pose a threat to Bitcoin security model as the increased utilization of Bitcoin's network uh, brings about greater usage, which, which ultimately bring, brings about more layer one transactions. How should we think about the role of, of miners mining within, within Lightning? And without miners, how, how is the Lightning network's integrity maintained? Yeah. Uh, so with, with Lightning, essentially, uh, the channels are open between two different counterparties or between you and a counterparty. And uh, you're essentially kind of in the commanding seat to make sure that the that something doesn't happen to your funds that are locked in that channel. And so what Lightning does is each participant shuffles Bitcoin back and forth within their channel. And then if there's an event where one tries to act maliciously and it tries to go to the base layer and goes, hey, uh, actually these coins are mine, when in reality that's not how things were working on layer two, you can publish the correct state of the ledger on layer one. So what it all it relies upon is that you just have an updated state of the channel and that you publish that, that the accurate state is published. And I, and so really the security in that model is just making sure that your connectivity is good, which yields a whole bunch of different problems. Lightning is very useful for a lot of things. Lightning also has this whole host of issues, but essentially users are more empowered to be part of the safekeeping of their money only the money that's locked up in that lightning channel, which you can keep a very, very small amount. So essentially game theory and users controlling their funds on layer two is what protects it. And then when it's printed on layer one, the net value, uh, the miners then protect that. So ultimately lightning is protected by the miners whenever that net value is printed on layer one. And then on layer two, making sure that you, that you submit that correct state to layer one is more, and that's more on the user. By the way, that's all automated. Um, so a person doesn't actually have to worry about that. So what sort of use cases are you most excited about peering into the, into the future? Yeah. So my, uh, one of my products early in, in crypto years back in 2015 that I worked on was called change tip and we did micropayments over social media. And so that's why I brought up the uh, tip and dot me is because I think that's a really cool way to show something that's more than a like, it's more than a favorite, more than an emoji. It's like a little token of appreciation of value. That's why I highlighted that one. I thought that was really cool. And then, you know, with Lightning, the, the fees are so low and the speeds are so fast that we can introduce the idea of something called streaming payments, where payments can be streamed when you watch a video or payments can be streamed if you had autonomous cars, where autonomous cars could pay per second, like you could pay an autonomous car per second to drive you. 
um, or the autonomous car could pay per second as it passes other cars in the road. Um, it sort of brings around a faster flow to money and enables money to move quickly and cheaply, very, very, very cheaply. And to put it in context, Lightning technically has extremely high throughput, um, much higher than Visa and MasterCard, because each channel that's opened, so that's only two on-chain transactions, can do up to 400 transactions per second-ish. And I might be wrong a little bit directionally, but but I, I believe 400 transactions per second is what I've heard it, that they're capable of doing. And then they can do that, and they can do that every single second, and they can open up that channel, and that channel doesn't have to close forever. You could keep that channel open forever if you'd like, uh, or near forever, uh, or you could have it a very short duration. But essentially, that's 400x times the normal amount that you could do, and then you multiply that by how many channels are open, and the number gets massive. So I think the throughput's really exciting. I think the streaming payments is a good application, a good example of an application, micropayments, micropayments for video content. And so I think the micropayments angle is interesting. You know, we tried that back in the day. It's, it's really hard. And I'm, I'm still not sure if it's ready, but I'm excited for other people to try to do it. And I encourage them to. You know, just I think hopefully if you want to reach out to me and I can walk you through what we did wrong and maybe maybe you won't make the same mistakes and, and you can build something really useful and, and that people really love. And so I, I think, yeah, it's, it's a lot about the flow of money. It essentially makes things very fast and very cheap to move. And I think that's, those are two good examples of what I think might be, might be exciting in the future. Cool. And maybe closing out on lightning here and the podcast, what do you think will be the, the tipping point for, for lightning in terms of what key milestone or thing they have to prove before it sort of takes a step function in, in credibility in people's minds? Yeah, I think, you know, for, for full, to run a full node is really onerous and Neutrino is coming out, which is a, a light client for Bitcoin. And I think that's a very important step in having people be able to use Lightning without having to run a full node. So that's like a big, I'd say, inflection point. You know, I think as well, like a, a big use case would be a nice, a nice inflection point. I think there's a lot of hypothetical good products, but we really need to see a solid one where someone finds a core group of Bitcoin believers or other believers who are willing to buy Bitcoin to use it uh, that unlock some functionality. Otherwise, until then, this is very much the problem with every other crypto project is that we have all these hypothetical use cases, uh, but we've seen very little traction, if not none, uh, for almost all of them. Whereas, again, I want to argue that Bitcoin's core value is as a store of value. Again, store of value doesn't mean that the price doesn't fluctuate. Gold fluctuates quite a bit. Uh, it means that you can store it in a way that's hard to seize which gold and Bitcoin both have that property. Bitcoin, however, enables you to have all these other things you can do with it, like move it across the world in a few seconds, which is really, really cool. So yeah, I, I think those two might be the inflection points around like the actual use case and then around Neutrino, which Neutrino makes it much easier to participate. So yeah, largely like UX. I think UX inflection points will be around someone building something that harnesses a good UX. And that'll be when we maybe see some, some really big growth and adoption. Yeah, this is a good place to close, Dan. This has been a fantastic podcast. For people who want to learn more about your work, both uh, as, a, as a writer and as a co-founder of Interchange, uh, where can you point them to? And, and uh, please share any, any plugs for what the, they should expect. Yeah, so interchangehq.com is our website. Uh, what we do is we do reconciliation and accounting solutions for anyone who has a business in crypto. So if you're dealing with a bunch of different crypto assets across multiple blockchains, multiple exchanges, we help you reconcile all the data. It can be a giant headache. Uh, so you can shoot me an email at dan at pix.co. 
And then on a personal level, uh, you can go to danheld.com to read my blog or follow me at danheld on Twitter. Awesome. Dan, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 